Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. As Catherine said, my name is Tom Spohr, the director of the Center for National Defense at the Heritage Foundation. And welcome to our event, U.S. Intelligence. How does it adapt to a rapidly changing national security landscape? We are honored to be partnered with Texas A&M University's Bush School of Government and Public Service to present this event. And at this time, I would like to introduce Lieutenant General Retired Jay Silveria, the Executive Director of the Bush School for some opening remarks. General. Uh, Tom, thank you. Thank you very much. And we are excited to, to co-sponsor this event with the Heritage Foundation. The Bush School of Texas A&M University is certainly new to D.C., but the Bush School has a long-standing tradition of sending graduates to serve in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's in line with our ethos that public service is a noble calling. Our students and faculty look forward to being part of a many impactful conversations here in Washington, D.C advancing thought in a number of areas. Today's discussion is certainly about intelligence, but we are building out programs in international policy and national security to continue in those conversations. Thank you to the Heritage Foundation and thank you, Tom. Thank you, General Silveria. Well, the Director of National Intelligence's recent annual threat assessment emphasized that the complexity of threats facing the United States, their intersections, and the potential for cascading events in an increasingly interconnected and mobile world create new challenges for the IC. The need to evolve and adapt the IC to meet the needs of the United States in the 21st century is generally acknowledged, but change is always difficult and opinions vary on the correct path to take. Well, to help us understand the priorities and the issues involved, we have three great experts and I now invite them to join us on screen. First, we have Dr. Steve Cambone, Associate Vice Chancellor for Cybersecurity Initiatives and Professor of Practice, Texas A&M University System, and former Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. Next, we have Professor Gary Ross, Associate Professor of Practice, Department of International Affairs and Director of Intelligence Studies, Bush School of Government and Public Service, Texas A&M University, in Washington, D.C. And our final panelist is, is Mr. David Shedd, Heritage Foundation Visiting Fellow, former Acting Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and an adjunct professor at Patrick Henry College. I'm going to ask each of our panelists a question to get things started and then maybe follow up with a question or two, but then we'd really like to hear from you, the audience, and the questions you have. So I invite you to enter questions at the tab and we will get to as many as we can in the time we have. So the first question is for you, Dr. Cambone. Last week, there were lengthy discussions at the annual threat assessments hearings before, before the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. And on Monday this week, we had former DNI John Ratcliffe, both discussing great power competition and specifically on the threats emanating from China and Russia. I'm sure we'll get into further discussion on those hearings and that and that event, but what is it that you did not hear 
discussed within those hearings that the IC must take into consideration going forward. Or better put, what high-risk, low-probability blind spots do we need to be paying attention to that you might even put in a category of surprise? Well, thanks, Tom, uh, and thank you for having me here. I, uh, I appreciate the invitation from both Heritage and, and the Bush School, and hello to my fellow panelists and those who are here in the audience. Uh, Tom, you know, the, those hearings are very good in, in, in spanning the range of issues and topics that one ought to pay attention to. But as I was going back preparing for this uh, event, I came uh, to pay attention to something the DNI said in her short discussion of China in her opening statement. And after identifying economy, demography, and other domestic issues uh, in China, she said uh, those uh, elements can complicate its ability to uh, manage transition to the dominant role it aspires to. And I started to reflect on that, and it occurs to me in the light of your question, we tend frequently to uh, pay attention to those things which are obvious strengths of potential adversaries. Rarely do we focus on potential weaknesses and whether those weaknesses may either do one of two things, impede them as, as she may be implying here and cause uh, a China or a Russia for that matter or Iran to be a bit more cautious and to take more time and to worry more about reaction both at home and abroad. The alternative is that it causes them to want to accelerate their activity to achieve what they seek prior to the loss of whatever edge they think they may have. So looking after that side of the equation, it seems to me is at least as important, the vulnerabilities that they may face and how it will influence their behavior and learn how to warn against the, the reactions by those countries and their leadership in light of those vulnerabilities and potential weaknesses. Let me just follow up on that for a second because you've intrigued me there. Do you, are there, in your view, what what might be some weaknesses that China might have that we might be able to take advantage of? Uh, two come to mind immediately, and they're lost. Uh, one is obvious, the other lost in the details. The obvious one is demographic. Uh, they are quickly approaching the inflection point where the number of folks uh, in the uh, workforce sufficient to sustain the economy, to take care of the uh, older generation and so forth, um, that, that moment's passing, and, and they are going to be on the downside of that curve. Uh, they may have fewer people in their working force than we have, for example. Uh, it's hard to believe, but it, it, that potential's there. The other lost in the noise is gains in productivity. Um, the Chinese growth is, is driven uh, much by investment, uh, and, and much of it in, in real estate. Uh, they count GDP uh, on the day the, the nickel gets dropped, not on the output on the other side. And if productivity doesn't increase, uh, then their growth is not going to improve in a way that makes them a more substantial, substantially capable power. Their GDP may grow, but their substantial capability may not. Thank you very much. Super interesting. Um, the next question is for you, Mr. Ross. We have heard from the IC leaders on the current threats and the Biden administration has put out an interim national security guidance. As it relates to where we see intelligence reform go from here, how do you see the evolving role of the new threats we face, both in the near and the long term? Good, uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, 
uh, want to thank the Heritage Foundation, uh, the Bush School, audience uh, members, and the other panelists uh, for joining me here today. Um, I, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that the threat landscape that we're currently facing is probably the most complex it's ever been. Uh, based on cumulative threat, we have nation states, we have international terrorist organizations, we have transnational criminal organizations, we have APT, advanced persistent threat, hacking groups, and we have lone wolf actors. And unfortunately, uh, each group is bolstered by uh, alarming advances in technology which only makes the intelligence community role more challenging and more critical than ever. So uh, looking at the near-term impact on intelligence reform, uh, I think the first thing that I have to say is that we really can't ignore uh, our traditional adversaries. I think we would do so at our own peril. I think one, uh, one mistake that we made at the end of the Cold War was severely diminishing our experience, our collection and analysis experience, uh, looking at the former Soviet Union and, and currently Russia. Um, looking at the intelligence community threat assessment that was just recently published, uh, there really isn't anything new as far as who our adversaries are. We have, we have China uh, and their efforts to advance their technology, both for their military and uh, for their economy. We have Russia and their attempts to increase their influence regionally and worldwide and decrease U.S. Uh, influence. We have North Korea uh, and their nuclear capability. Uh, we have Iran and their nuclear capability and their support to terrorism. Uh, and then we have the terrorist organizations themselves. Uh, I think what's really new now is the sustained level uh, by all of the threat actors uh, at the same time. And so uh, when we're looking at perhaps what's new, uh, what's identified in, in the uh, threat assessment is new. Maybe it's, it's really more targets outside of government, uh, private sectors certainly, uh, private sectors driving innovation and a couple of areas in particular that were pointed out were uh, AI, artificial intelligence, and quantum computing, both of which I couldn't explain to you if I, if I tried. Uh, also in the private sector is supply chain, those clear defense contractors that are providing uh, technology to the US, to the US military to maintain our current level. Uh, and currently as we've seen, uh, information operations targeting the U.S. public itself. And so on the part of the intelligence community, what it really requires is uh, increased outreach and increased support for the private sector. Uh, and this is something that uh, organizations here in D.C. have been focusing on. Uh, the Intelligence and National Security Alliance, it's a, a, a hot topic, you know, how to have the information sharing between government and private sector, uh, the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency within DOD, and the CIA partnership for cleared industry, uh, both horizontal between cleared defense industry and vertical between uh, the private sector and the government. Uh, if we're looking at new threats, uh, there are some new threats, uh, and it's really the use of, of non-traditional actors, those, those advanced persistent threat hacker groups, those lone wolves that aren't perhaps working on behalf of a terrorist organization or a nation state are inspired. Uh, by a terrorist organization or a nation state. Uh, unfortunately, there are a couple of exacerbating factors that we see uh, in the present day, uh, both external factors and internal factors. Uh, externally, we have things like the global pandemic, uh, the downturn in the global economy, uh, forced migration that are exacerbating the threat. Uh, and then unfortunately, internally, we have things like uh, the unwelcome politicization 
uh, of both the intelligence community and intelligence, uh, and unfortunately continued unauthorized disclosures of classified information, both in the US media and in foreign media. Uh, I think finally, if we're looking at the long-term impact of these threats uh, on intelligence community reform, I'd say that the intelligence community really needs to invest in that next generation of technology uh, to stay ahead of our adversaries. Uh, and of course, we need to continue to recruit and retain the best and the brightest and make sure that, that the public and those people coming out from universities or the private sector uh, are aware that uh, a career in the intelligence community is really, uh, like Bush School uh, said, is a noble calling. Uh, so that's a lot of uh, a lot of things that are going on all at the same time. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate that. And uh, David Shedd, the next question is for you, sir. In, the, in today's world, technology and data have become king. We have seen adversaries with significantly less resources be able to reach across our borders digitally. We have seen state and non-state actors engage in informational warfare and espionage at large scale during the election seasons, as well as economic espionage. Where do you see this year of big data going as it relates to the intelligence community? Well, thank you, Tom, and uh, greetings to the audience out there. I'm delighted to be sitting here with uh, two fellow panelists as well, and to uh, Texas A&M and the Bush School, and, and obviously Heritage for putting on uh, this event. I don't think anyone would question that the amount of data that's produced every day is truly mind-boggling. When I think of it, there are 2.5 quintillion bytes of information created daily. That's with 18 zeros next to quintillion. And the data is uh, only going to increase because of the Internet of Things. And, and uh, as we know, the, the future looks uh, very robust in terms of a data-driven world. Over the last two years, 90% uh, uh, of the data in the world has been created. So that just gives you a scope of this. And there are 4.7 4 billion internet users. I think we all get the picture then. It's data driven to your question in terms of where the world is. And therefore we have to transition into how does the intelligence community of 18 elements take full advantage of, of this data? Um, there are a number of opportunities but I will also point out some challenges, or I would say obstacles or barriers uh, that, I, that I see in the intelligence community uh, of today in addressing this against the greater power competition as DNI Ratcliffe described it on Monday, as opposed to just great power competition. Let me just outline very quickly the opportunities. Those rest in the exploitation of open source, and this information will provide greater knowledge, and ultimately provide the indications and warnings in many instances around the globe that allow the policymaker along with the warfighter as customers or users of intelligence to be better informed. And this is a real opportunity for the intelligence community to focus on that. Secondly, there's an opportunity to make this object-based intelligence. That is, what I'm looking for as an intelligence professional is the degree of change in the pattern of life of either an individual or an object or an entity out there and that can also be driven by the anomaly that you find in information uh, finding that may be tricky but in the end it can be very informative and thirdly there is 
I think and I believe, and there's three of us on here who teach uh, in part for a living or at least uh, are focused on this generation, there is real talent out there. There's real opportunity to draw from the talent of be it students today or the, the virtually everyone on this uh, panel right now, the younger generation, that would be anybody perhaps under 50, maybe 60, that are uh, truly talented individuals that we can attract into the intelligence community. But that comes with a footnote, which is uh, part of the challenge that we just mentioned very briefly. So what are those challenges, obstacles, or barriers that I see within the intelligence community against this backdrop of this uh, very important set of uh, adversaries that we have that uh, both Gary and Steve have talked about. One, the U.S. lags uh, considerably in terms of, of, of where the private sector, the commercial sector is in the processing technology of data. I like to say the one with the most data wins, but it also is the one who can process the data, find that anomaly that I mentioned in terms of the opportunity that, that will uh, win the game here in terms of, of, of uh, where we are going. And secondly, there is a sense that's required of urgency. Uh, time is not on our side, as the recent Artificial Intelligence Commission report pointed out. The Chinese have advanced and, and have a plan, as they want to do with their five-year plans by 2025, certainly to uh, dominate in this area of AI and machine learning. Secondly, the hiring and retaining of talent is a real challenge. And I believe those, those challenges range from the security clearance process all the way to the financial incentives to attract people with the science and technology and engineering and software uh, knowledge and capabilities. Fourthly, or thirdly, I should say, culture. There is a culture and that there's an underappreciation, and I, I believe it still exists in the intelligence community, certainly in certain agencies where unclassified or open source information is less worthy of consideration than classified information, be it stolen or acquired in some other way, uh, in terms of the destiny associated with getting or collecting that information. And I think that it, it puts us behind uh, the uh, capabilities that to, to be all you can be in terms of exploiting information. And lastly, there is still, I am very concerned between, uh, or a divide between the domestic and foreign intelligence uh, aspects. I think we, we plugged a lot of those holes when it comes to counterterrorism with uh, the, the uh, follow-on in terms of the Intelligence Reform Act of 2004, uh, post 9-11, 2001. But I still believe there is um, this artificial divide of where this intelligence can be retained under, for example, the law enforcement communities that is not shared with the uh, national intelligence organizations or the combat support agencies and vice versa. And I think much more needs to be done to confront the kinds of challenges, security challenges that we face with these adversaries in terms of information collection. And so like Gary, a lot said in a, fair, a very limited amount of time. There's a lot to unpack there. David, thank you very much. And uh, we're getting some great uh, questions come in from the audience. Uh, keep sending them and we'll get to as many as we can. I'm gonna uh, kind of amalgamate a couple of uh, ideas and questions that are coming in. It has to do with intelligence 
uh, alliances. And Dr. Cambone, I'm going to go to you for first comment on this one. But uh, we discussed how we can't treat uh, great power competition as as Cold War, you know, Part Two or something like that. Now, that having been said, alliances were one of the most strategic, in, in strategically important needs during that time period. And wondering what opportunities for alliances exist or should be further explored. explored. And uh, we've had two questions come in also about alliances. One has to do with Brazil. And the, this is from uh, Richard William Bavera Nunez. And he's, he's of the belief that Brazil is becoming more of the same kind of ideology as the United States. And is there an opportunity to, to do more with Brazil? And then another question, Emma Ross asks, uh, she's pointing to the recent um, incident that happened in Iran where they had a, uh, an issue with their nuclear uh, facility and they had a power thing and it's widely believed that Israel might have had something to do with that. Is it possible to cultivate uh, deep alliances when you may have different goals uh, uh, between your allies? And so Dr. Cambone, I'll go to you that first and then others can comment on that. Well, thanks Tom for the easy first question from the audience. Uh, so the, the, the first part that is relatively straightforward, though, is alliances are absolutely essential to the United States. Um, it, it is a long way from the United States to those places where our interests are being threatened abroad. We, we have our, our difficulties here at home, to be sure. But in terms of threats from abroad, it's a long way. And, and we need uh, to share with our friends and allies in those regions uh, not just intelligence. Um, we do a lot of that. Uh, I mean, David spent a career uh, worrying about those kinds of things. But it's also an understanding of the culture, uh, what motivates people, how are they thinking, what is the domestic view uh, of the United States, of its relationships with a given country, of that country to the, the, uh, the threats that the United States sees. So it's deeper than the technical exchange, I, I, I would argue to you. Um, and, and we need that, uh, the United States does. We, we can, of course, be very insular by virtue of our distance from the places of interest. And, and we need that rounding, if you will. And, and secondly, in the world we're in, because of the role for social media, the news cycles and things of that nature, our decision makers, policy makers need to be attuned to how our activity, our language uh, affects the way in which others uh, view these matters. On the subject of, uh, of, of Brazil, I, I don't have a particular opinion there, but it does, it does highlight uh, the notion that our traditional intelligence allies may need to be supplemented, augmented, and, and, um, and new uh, friends found for the kinds of challenges that, that we are now facing. Um, and, and let me leave it at that. Uh, and, and on the question of, of uh, differing views across the strategic uh, uh, vision of any one uh, partner, the answer there is yes, we're always going to have uh, differences amongst uh, powers large and small about their interests. Uh, the question, I think, or the objective needs to be a, a, a diplomacy, not just in intelligence, but in a diplomacy that finds a, a common base on which those differences can be identified right, so that they can be accommodated. Um, it's, it's, it's not a zero sum in relationships among sovereign states. 
and and so our diplomacy needs to set that that baseline of interest uh, between and among our, our friends and allies and from there be able to judge what the uh, range of uh, flexibility and freedom of, of motion and action either we or our ally might have Let, let's let's not forget that it's a two-way street they too have interests and they too are going to protect their sovereign authority and they too are gonna to protect their people. So we need to, to, to add the diplomacy to the intelligence in order to get to the kind of understanding you're talking about. Great, wonderful. Uh, can, can I just yeah, add please. what Steve said? There's, there's a couple of codas to, to his comments. One is our allies oftentimes provide comparative advantages either geographically where they find themselves or the focus of their attention. And so often uh, that's a force multiplier in terms of our knowledge base and, and understanding on a particular hard, hard problem or hard target as, as the intelligence community would call it. The second aspect is there are great opportunities with the advent of much more an open source to build these relationships. And we, we've played that out for nearly two decades with Afghanistan and Iraq be it with NATO and other partners as well. Uh, not necessarily always on the policy level because of the war zones, but certainly information sharing proved to be absolutely critical to our successes there. And the third comment is about Brazil. As a Latin Americanist, I will speak up. I think there are enormous opportunities with the Bolsonaro uh, administration. It is much more aligned in terms of the U.S. interests, and there are opportunities for the leadership role that Brazil can play not only in the Western Hemisphere, but vis-a-vis -vis other uh, parts of the world as well, uh, as, as an economy of its size and a, a, and a developed political system and all of that, where the, the, the rule of law and all of that is applied uh, fairly stringently, as we've seen with former presidents ending up in jail and a judicial system that works and all of that. So there are a number of reasons where that cooperation can be strengthened be it through our Southern Command in, in Florida, uh, in the outreach to the, to the hemisphere, or through the intelligence community on, on the civilian side as well. Great, David, thank you for adding that. So it's, uh, it's our good fortune, I think, to have three educators on our panel today. And so this one is gonna get to this, uh, this uh, need to educate the next generation. And Gary, I'm gonna go to you first on this, but you know, over, often overlooked in the discussion of the IC, we want to talk about our technology and our sources, is that it depends on a steady flow of talent to fill the trenches and to help decision makers understand the impact of technology in other areas which other people didn't grow up with. And I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the challenges today in recruiting new professionals for the intelligence community and what can be done uh, to mitigate those issues. And, and Gary, we'll go to you first. Sure, uh, thanks. Um, unfortunately, some of the challenges that we faced are, are self-inflicted uh, challenges, I think. Um, there, there seems to be currently maybe a, a negative public perception uh, based on what's published in the media or what politicians uh, are providing. Uh, I watched uh, both the HIPSI, the House Government Select Committee of Intelligence, and the Senate Select Committee of Intelligence recently held hearings based on the interim national security strategy and the uh, threat assessment that the intelligence community put out. And uh, I think a little bit more on the House side than on the Senate side, uh, it was sad to see the amount of politicization uh, that was going on the back and forth between one political party 
and the other political party, often to the detriment of the, you know, intelligence community professionals, the DNI, the head of IC agencies that were there to testify to talk about the threats. Uh, it seemed like there was a lot of people talking past each other, and that's picked up you know, by the media, it's picked up by the public, and uh, unfortunately, then people who are considering a career in the intelligence community, uh, that's a factor that they look at, the amount of politicization, how the media is portraying the intelligence community. Um, there are claims in the public, there are claims in the media of bias, uh, of incompetence, and it's certainly uh, not helping us in, in recruiting that next generation of professional that's required. Uh, it's really up to us, uh, I'm a former member of the intelligence community, but the next generation of the current uh, people within the intelligence community really to fight for that respect that's very well deserved. Uh, you know, we have a new uh, DCIA, new director of central intelligence. We have a new director of national intelligence, uh, and they both want to push forward this idea uh, that I mentioned before that working in the intelligence community is a noble calling, and to try and, and change that perception, perhaps that the public uh, and the media have. Uh, and then finally, I think uh, competitive salaries certainly, uh, particularly in the technology and high technology fields, uh, bringing people will provide them with training certificates, but in order for us to keep those people or to recruit those people, we really have to look at what uh, a similar position within the private sector uh, is demanding. Uh, certainly people will come to the intelligence community beyond the salary, you know, to work on national security, to work on strengthening the United States, uh, but certainly it doesn't hurt to have that competitive salary to go along uh, with that mission, that strong mission. Great, thank you, Gary. Uh David or Steve, anything to add to that? Uh, Tom, uh, if I could uh, climb up on a soapbox for a minute. There are many uh, uh, communities out of which uh, folks can be recruited into the intelligence community. Uh, the private sector uh, business, for example, is one. Um, the military, obviously, is another. Universities are another obvious uh, way to do it. The new team uh, in place now has an enormously uh, important opportunity here to take actually extant programs, scholarship for service, the, um, uh, the defense cyber leadership development program. Uh, there, there are any number of these programs that exist which can easily be expanded, both in terms of the number of universities that are taking part and in terms of funding, which is not, the, in my judgment, is not the um, impediment. In, in other words, there, it's not very costly for universities to begin to pull together the kinds of academic and uh, practical experience applied research programs necessary to prepare students to enter into the intelligence community day one ready to contribute, provided um, that the, uh, my, my real uh, soapbox issue is the clearance processes get cleaned up. Right. If, if you want the students to be able to come in, they need to know two things. One, what not to do in order to be able to pass the test to get in. <laughs> and then two, can they be assured that if they've done all of those things, are they going to be cleared in time for them to be able to move into those positions? Because if they leave, if they graduate and they have to wait a year or two years before their appointments become active, they're going to have to, they're going to, have to go someplace else in order to be able to earn a living. Can I just add two points, Tom, to the retention issue and, and two ideas that come along with what Steve and Gary were saying. 
my biggest challenge at DIA was not recruiting, it was retaining. And it was retaining the 30-something-year-old, which was making progress toward being a mid-career individual, the ones I really wanted to, to hold on to. So two ideas. One is in that hard-fought security clearance process was allowing them to have their security clearance for five years from the time they leave DIA and go into the private commercial sector. And obviously they have to behave in such a way that, that it's worthy of retaining that security clearance. But it was always on the bet that a good number of them would want to return because of that call, to, that noble call to service that Gary's talked about. The second uh, issue is uh, increasing the opportunities, particularly for uh, the, the younger generation again, for joint duty opportunities in the private sector. The opportunity to go into the laboratory, if you will, of the STEM world at the universities, to go into Silicon Valley or, or the rest in Dulles Corridor and work with these companies for a year or two, hone their skills and come back into the IC while still retaining their clearance. These will be, it, it was interesting, salary wasn't always the top required uh, uh, benchmark that we had to meet. It was how do we actually help them build a career that is much more akin to what their private commercial sector colleagues and peers were, were in fact uh, enjoying. Great, thank you, David. Really intriguing stuff. So this uh, next question comes from the audience and it's from Carl uh, Beckstein. And uh, Carl wants to know, how can we leverage America's private sector and major corporations who do in fact do a lot of business in China and around the world uh, to enhance our intelligence efforts? Uh, who'd like to take a stab at that? Well, I'll, I'll start with that and now I'll uh, turn a, a bit the uh, the uh, focus on our our colleagues in the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The FBI has a, a robust relationship with the private sector in, in relationship and as a major uh, member of the intelligence community and made even more robust beyond the counterintelligence mission of FBI after 9-11, they are in turn are in those relationships with the private sector to better understand both the counterintelligence uh, picture inside the United States and, and where Director Ray uh, doing the, uh, the hearings uh, a week ago uh, noted that the FBI opens an investigation on China every 10 hours. Uh, so understanding the nature, and I think it was you, Steve, that mentioned the, the proclivity of, of our adversaries to, or maybe it was you, Gary, as well, the idea of stealing the secrets from the private sector. Uh, the, the cyber threats that we face, as we well know, uh, extend far beyond just the, uh, the, the public sector and the public square. And so the, the, the relationship in answer to this very good question is, not only is there already a strong relationship, those need to be deepened. And, and frankly, everything that Gary was describing about politicization of intelligence applies here as well. Good Americans who feel that they, uh, in their relationship with the US government and particularly the intelligence community is not gonna be protected 
are going to be very, very leery about going into a relationship and conversations with the intelligence community. So we come down to one big word, trust. You have to have trust between the two parties. Otherwise, it's, it's a fool's errand in many ways because ultimately that private sector that depends on shareholders or investors and all of that, it's going to say the, the risk is simply too high. I think there's a, a, a big difference uh, what we have here in the U.S. versus uh, some of our either strategic competitors, adversaries, you know, whatever you want to call them, like China, where their industry are required by law to support the government, to support their innovation, to support their military. Uh, here in the United States, certainly there's no requirements. So it requires that coordination, that information sharing, and, and the government's doing a good job reaching out to its private sector partners, whether it's uh, the innovators that are working in next generation technology uh, or whether it's supply chain, which has certainly been something that's been in a large focus here uh, in, in the DC area. You know, we do a good job protecting things within the government and even with clear defense contractors. So now we're really looking to shore up that, that supply chain that's providing that uh, information or technology. So we like to partner with them. I mean, we meaning the US government We'd like to partner with private sector. Uh, we'd like to share information as appropriate, but also we have to understand that the private sector are also for business entities who are under no obligation. So it really requires them to understand for us to be able to explain to them what is the threat in having a joint venture with China? What is the threat of uh, building next generation technology with universities or with other places that, that may not have U.S. best interests in mind? So uh, it's difficult, but it's something that the, that the government is aware of and uh, is working to improve. Great. Thank you. You know, I, I, I thought we were going to get into politicization and when uh, an audience member has asked that question. So let's go down that road for a minute or two here. And uh, we were talking earlier how it can take the form of maybe a lack of trust in the intelligence community if Americans perceive that they are becoming more political or maybe a tendency on the, on the part of the IC to shade intelligence based on what they think uh, politicians might want to hear. And, and this question um, comes from uh, Madison Ionello, and she asked about what can elected officials do to, to kind of reduce the impact of politicization. And I would also ask, what can the intelligence community do as well? And Dr. Cambone, if we could start with you on this, that'd be great. Boy, you keep starting with me on the hard ones, huh? Um, <laughs> So the the uh, the I, I happen to believe that the policymaker is the key to to this question, and um, my experience um, has been that um, well, let me put it this way: I, I never thought I got an answer from the intelligence community that was geared to my proclivities uh, ever. Um, uh, so I, I've, I've never found the notion that um, uh, what is being said, what was said to me was shaded to meet my, my interests. Um, having said that, um, I, I think it's incumbent on policymakers not to uh, present their choices in policy based on what they have been, what they have learned from their briefers, right? That, that is input to policy. It is not the definition of policy. 
And, and what it creates then is, is an easier way for the policymaker to point the finger someplace else as to why something didn't work, when in fact that is not the role of the intelligence community. That responsibility rests with the policymaker, and the policymaker is the one who has to be clear to the public what it has in mind for the nation, the basis on which it went ahead and made that decision, to the extent that there's information from the intelligence community that can be revealed, fine. But, but the, the decision is really not based primarily or solely on what you learn from, from the intelligence. So, so setting the community up for failure is a mistake and, and policymakers have to avoid doing it. Thank you. David or Gary, any other comment? I, I would just add uh, on the congressional side, um, it's very unfortunate, and Gary, I think you alluded to this, the politicization of intelligence over the last uh, several years where uh, when uh, both the House and the Senate select committees were established in 1976 and 1977, the whole idea was that they would be a neutral arbiter in terms of the oversight as authorizers associated with intelligence. And so giving that undue thumb on the scale to a particular issue and uh, finding uh, a camera and a microphone that a politician always loves to be in front of is, is extremely deleterious to, to the intelligence community in, in not only protecting sources and methods, but the messaging that it suggests to the intelligence professionals who once uh, they're engaged in those briefings and all of that, don't know how their information is gonna be used or worse yet, abused in, in the sense of making a political, uh, and, and it's an apolitical statement when I say this, both, both sides do it and we need to be, we need to get back to the basics of congressional oversight that depoliticizes intelligence. Excellent. I got a quick question here from uh, Paul Sparks. He sounds like an intelligence practitioner, but uh, he's, he's interested in your opinion of providing raw intelligence to customers with, of course, the appropriate caveats when there's not enough information to move it into finish, the finished intelligence category. You know, at least that way it does not get lost. You know, at least the policymakers can, can consider it. And uh, David, why don't we start with you on that? Sure. Uh, have, having sat for four and a half years in, in the White House uh, National Security Council staff, I can tell you the Situation Room was constantly getting raw intelligence in terms of the overnight feeds and all throughout the day as well. And one of the things that we constantly uh, encouraged the policymakers of that time associated with the, with the Bush administration was, was to look at that as think of it as tipper information. It, 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 it can take you down a path of uh, one, creating an alert that something's happening in terms of the raw intelligence, and two, the ability to ask further questions of the intelligence community. What is one, the context of the information? Where does it fit into the larger uh, picture that, that the intelligence community would provide analytically? And three, what is the context of that one raw report to the body of information that may be out there as well that may not be readily available to that, that policymaker sitting in the White House in the particular example that I 
provide, but for Steve sitting as the Undersecretary for Intelligence and other customers in DOD, or whether it's at Department of State and all of that. And what we have seen is, is that to act prematurely on raw intelligence has often had dire consequences because the first thing that you do is react to it and act on that information in a manner that is absent all the things that I said, the context, the body of information, and the analysis that goes with it. Yes, yeah, to add on to, uh, to add on what you're just saying, uh, I think we make a big distinction, or at least we try uh, to make a distinction between information and intelligence. And so part of the mission of the intelligence community is to collect information based on requirements that are levied on it by uh, decision makers. So through whatever platform, SIGINT, human, human uh, the collectors will go out and collect that information. But the other significant part of the intelligence community is the analysis uh, and dissemination of finished intelligence. And so we need to make that distinction between information that was collected, but the other thing that the IT brings to the table is that professional uh, analysis of that information to turn it into finished intelligence that we can then give to national security decision makers, hopefully to support national security objectives, hopefully not uh, for some other uh, other reason, but that analysis is really critical. And we have professionals within the community whose mission it is uh, to conduct that analysis to help decision makers understand that raw information means in context. So Tom, every policymaker should have on his office wall First reports are rarely sufficient to make decisions. <laughs> so true. Uh, this is going to be our, uh, we're at the end of our time nearly here. And so we're going to do a closer question. If you could be relatively brief in your response, that'd be wonderful. And we'll start again with you, Dr. Cambone. And it's got to do with uh, COVID-19. And, you know, it's it's a cliche almost to talk about how much it has changed the way of life. But uh, this, this listener, Thomas Spitters, wants to know, you know, how has the coronavirus pandemic kind of changed our security models? How should we, how should the intelligence community change in response to this newfound or new realized uh, phenomena of global pandemics? So Dr. Cambone, over to you. Uh, it's a vast subject. I mean, but, but, but clearly in the, in the reporting we're seeing these days out of the community, they're paying more attention to the likelihood of such uh, breakouts and, and their political impact. And, and that's going to be, to go on um, for, for the foreseeable future. Uh, so I, 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 you know, there's not much to add from my point of view. I mean, it just has changed the way people have to now think about those kinds of difficulties. Great, David or Gary, anything to add? I, I think uh, it provides an opportunity in so much as uh, there's an opportunity for a liaison uh, not only with our traditional allies and traditional alliances, but even with our strategic competitors or our adversaries who are facing the same challenges. Uh, so things like COVID-19 that would be a mutual concern, there may be that opportunity for information sharing and then based on that to try and build uh, an ability for future uh, information sharing in areas like terrorism or non-proliferation where there might also be a mutual area of concern. So, you know, there may be an opportunity for some information sharing in an area of common concern, and then we could try and build on that uh, to see if there are other areas or opportunities for information sharing with our uh, strategic competitors or, or even adversaries. 
Thanks, just Jerry. very briefly, all I would add is that on this vast topic, it is a wake-up wake-up call for us to be very alert to um, the bio world and the threats. Going back to your very first question to Steve on the what would surprise us, we should not be surprised that in the bio world, obviously an offshoot of a pandemic like the one that we're we have been and currently are living under would have tremendous impact uh, in the negative, obviously, for uh, for the world, uh, wherever that bioweaponry would, would be used. Thank you, David. Well, I'm, I'm afraid, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of time. What a great session. We could go on forever on this. I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Cambone, Mr. Ross, and my colleague, David Shedd, for their great insights and their remarks. And I also really wanna thank our partners in this event, the Bush School of Government, of the Texas A&M University for their support uh, in helping us hold this event. Really wanna thank the audience. We didn't get to all your questions, we tried. Um, really important conversation. If you work on the Hill or if you work at a think tank or just have more questions, please contact us using the information on this screen and we'd love to continue that conversation. Uh, after this event, you'll get a survey. Please uh, complete it, help us make these events better. And uh, if you wanna see events that we have coming up, please check out uh, heritage.org slash events. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great day and thanks for joining us today. Goodbye.